Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all our LARB readers. My name is Eric Newman, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB. Hi, Eric. And we are here today to speak with Chiara Barzini, author of a new novel, Things That Happened Before the Earthquake. And I should also say, this was really fun just as an Angelino, or I guess a recent Angelino. Oh, You're not that know. recent. I don't know how long you have to be here to consider yourself that. But I will say it's just a great L.A. novel. It was fun, like, reading about L.A. It's set in kind of immediate L.A. riots, L.A., so 1992, 1993. And it was just an interesting take on kind of what it was like being in L.A. during that time. Yeah, it's a great novel. And I am just naturally, because of my egomania, drawn to any immigration stories. And so I loved it. For that reason as well. All right. Well, let's listen to our conversation with Chiara Barzini. Let's do it. We're joined today by Chiara Barzini, a journalist and writer of screenplays and fiction. Her writing has been featured in publications such as GQ Italy, Harper's, Bomb, Rolling Stone, and Vogue. She's written several screenplays, including Ariana which was nominated for Best Screenplay at the Italian Golden Globes. Her first book, Sister Stop Breathing, was published in 2012 by Calamari Press. Her most recent novel, Things That Happened Before the Earthquake, will be released this month by Doubleday. Welcome to the show, Chiara. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So can you just talk to us? One of the things that I really was a true pleasure about this novel was getting to steep myself not only in kind of Los Angeles, but also in the 1990s, which was a really interesting kind of time period. I mean, so why, can you talk to us just a little bit about why the 90s? You know, why was that resonant in this novel? Actually, hang on, let me just stop you before we get there. Mm -hmm. That you maybe tell us in your own words what the novel is about. Okay, well, the novel is a sort of immigrant tale about an Italian family that moves from Rome because the father has a big ambition of kind of making it big in Hollywood. And he kind of doesn't tell his family that instead of living in Beverly Hills, like anyone would expect when you're moving to Hollywood to make it big, they're actually going to live in Van Nuys. And it's 1992 and we're in the middle of the L.A. riots. So the family arrives in a kind of, you know, smoke-infested city and they're living in a pretty horrible neighborhood. And it's the coming-of-age story seen from the point of view of the 15-year-old daughter, but it's also kind of an epic fail sort of story about a family <laughs> that, <laughs> that doesn't, you know, things don't quite go as planned. It, but you, it, but you, it doesn't but get in, better. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't. <laughs> but, you know, they're endearing and it's sort of their own adventure. So you kind of go along with it. Can you talk about why the 90s as like sure. the kind of time period backdrop? Well, I actually did move to L.A. with my family in the 90s from Rome. And I did live in Van Nuys. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, uh-oh. uh-oh. <laughs> now I'm mapping too much of this, I think, on your life. But I, we actually moved here in 1994. So the earthquake had happened actually on the day of my birthday in 94. Okay. But we moved here in June. So the earthquake was behind our, our back, as were the riots. But it still felt like those two years that had led up to that June of 1994 had been so incredibly formative for the city that you arrived and you immersed yourself completely in this atmosphere of a lot of racial tension, a lot of police nervousness, 
to say the least, mm -hmm. you know, to not call it brutality. And it was just a very vibrant and kind of quaky time, you know, and the earthquake had happened. It was O.J. Simpson. It was kind of like, I thought it was like the most formative time for the city. It was like when everything broke down to start rebuilding again, in every sense, culturally and also physically. Can you talk a little bit about, because the protagonist, Eugenia, she kind of comes at her experience in Los Angeles with the very fresh perspective of somebody who is both not from Los Angeles, but also someone who is from outside of the U.S. Mm -hmm. I mean, so can you also talk about what was your, ex like, how were you processing all these all crazy historical and social events that were happening before you came to L.A.? Yeah, well, you know, I wasn't really processing them, which I think was part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there were big events, but it was hard to look at them with the right amount of distance at the time when we had moved here. So as life progressed and I was going to a public high school and I was kind of seeing things from my own eyes, I started to understand the sort of energy of the city around that time. But until, you know, it took a year before I actually understood what we were even talking about, well, like what the riots were about, what mm. happened, who were the people involved, why were they angry? And I think, you know, it, in the novel, I tried to sort of expand time a little bit so that all of those things would become resonant, but also you can kind of absorb them a little bit more because they were like trauma, you know, you, you don't understand it while you're living through it. The city wasn't even understanding what was going on. Everyone was just sort of frantic. The police got more defensive. You know, everyone was just very angry. So you didn't really know what it was. You just sort of figured it out bit by bit. And then with a lot of years later, I was able to look back on this chunk of time and this history of the city and really see it and also see how much it mirrors kind of like contemporary America in a mm. sense. You know, I think if you think about it, the Rodney King riots, that was the first time that an event of police brutality was filmed and then it was sold to media and it went viral without the help of the internet. So, you know, I kind of see that as the sort of, I think maybe the beginning of Black Lives Matter as a sort of state of mind you know and mm -hmm. it's been a long time since then but i think it just something there was like the seeds of of a contemporary discourse also on immigration and yeah you know health care <laughs> something that i thought was interesting also sort of around what you were just saying and what eric had just asked is i, I was recently editing this will seem like a tangent but it's not i was recently editing a piece called No One Comes to America for the First Time. Mm -hmm. And it's by an Indian writer named Anjan Hamasan. And the piece is essentially about how even if one had never been to the United States, mm -hmm. one arrives with ideas of what oh, yeah. America is. Absolutely. Partly because images of America, understandings of America are so widespread, so mm -hmm. internationally available. And I remember that, in fact, being the case when we immigrated, you mm -hmm. know, where I anticipated... Santa Barbara. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's not exactly what Queens looked like, which was sad for me. So there is also that aspect of like, you yeah. never really come here without quite knowing truly anything about it. You do have some expectations mm -hmm. of what it will look like. Was your experience similar to the sort of disconnect that Eugenia experiences? Mm, I think so. And 
Obviously, it was the early 90s, so we had 90210 was the oh, sort of right. hits TV show, and we were yeah. so obsessed with it. So when our dad said, guys, we're moving to L.A., we automatically thought, oh, that's going to be our high school, and right. we're going to have cars. <laughs> we're going to be so glamorous. <laughs> we're going to be so glamorous. We're going to have it's great bangs. so much fun, <laughs> you know. And I came from a very politically active high school, so my friends were very... You know, you're you're selling out. You're going into the imperialist country. You know, you, you shouldn't. You should rebel against this. And you know, and then when I arrived here, I was like, I wish I'd gone to an imperialist country. <laughs> 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 it doesn't seem like it. What uh, was it that you found? Well, I think the main question that was alarming for us was that no one explained to us the geography of the city. So the idea that you couldn't just walk anywhere. I mm-hmm. think that was the biggest shock because as a teenager in Rome, that's what yeah. you do. You just get out of your house and you either go hop on a scooter or bicycle or you walk or you take a bus, you know, and none of those things were available to us. So I just remember coming out of, getting out of the house the first morning we were there and thinking, I'm going to go downtown. <laughs> oh, that's so I'm going to go look for downtown. And after a while, I was on Sepulveda and someone said, you know, this is the longest street in LA and I don't think you're going to get where you're yeah. to. Who, who was it who broke the news? It was just a, just a random person. I was like, how do I get downtown? And they looked at me, they're like, well, <laughs> you go home. Not on foot. Yeah, not, not like on yeah. foot. Yeah. yeah, and so that's when I got really mad at my parents. I came back home and I was like, you mean there's no center? You know, oh. there's no center here? What? How is this possible? And that's when we had the talk, you know. So I think that's the main shock was just the idea that it was a city that I didn't really have access to. Mm-hmm. And the valley is a place that really disconnects you anyway from sure. yeah. from anything, you know. So I was just appalled. Like, you mean this is going to be my life on these streets that look like a crossword puzzle grid? Like, <laughs> how is this going to work out? And how long did you stay in the United States? So or? I stayed from 94 until 2008. But not always in L.A. I moved around a bit. But my family actually moved back to Rome and I decided to stay after all. Why did you move here in the first place? Why did you move or why did your family move? Well, ironically, (laughs) my father is a film director. So he did have an idea of let's go to Hollywood and let's see what happens. And it was the beginning of Berlusconi coming into power in Italy. So Mm. it was a very dense political moment there and... He just thought, it's going to be so much lighter in L.A. and it's going to be easier. And he just had a kind of dream also about how the city would be. And at least we didn't have the riots when we arrived, but it was definitely still in the air. You did not necessarily fly into a lighter place. No, not at all. There's an interesting way in which the Italian identity, right, feels very isolating in a weird way in the L.A. that you draw here. So Mm -hmm. because one of the things that's fascinating about the book is that one way I think you could read it is that it's all about desperate belonging and like how people Mm -hmm. cling to they cling to race. They cling to friends Mm -hmm. that are usually also share like race or family. Mm -hmm. But they're not happy with those relationships, but they mm-hmm. seem to really cling to them. And in, a, in an interesting way, there's a moment in the book where you talk about how the Italian kids, which is pretty much limited just to Eugenia's family, 
they don't have anybody mm-hmm. to really be with because mm-hmm. it's like, well, the kind of Latino kids mm-hmm. hang out with the Latino kids and the black kids hang out with the black kids and the Persian kids with the Persian kids. But there's Italians didn't have an identity yeah. or something. So you can talk about it. Was that strange, like navigating a particular kind of like identity in L.A. at that time? It was strange. It was very strange because it was very hard to find like a group, you know. I ended up after a year of hanging out with like these sort of limbo people, <laughs> were, like these anarchists that were hanging, you know, haunting like, the periphery. Yeah, it was like the, in the back field, there were some, you know, strange mixed characters. So a lot of sort of weird weirdos. <laughs> I think definitely weirdos from day one in my case. And then after a while, I bonded with mostly studious Jewish students. That was my (laughs) click. Because I think Jewish culture has something that's a little bit closer to European culture in terms of, I don't know, sense of humor, (laughs) self-deprecation. I don't (laughs) know. Right. You know, there's something, there was something familiar there. And that was like my safety. But for example, my brother, who's three years younger than me, and also I figured out early on to kind of you could play the sort of sophisticated European card, you know. So that was kind of my way out. It was like, well, you don't, you don't understand. You're just, you're just not from Europe. It's different there, you know. And I tried <laughs> to kind of act this role, and sometimes it was helpful, or at least I used it to my advantage. Mm. And my brother, he actually, he had a much harder time. They called him tomato in school. Oh, no. <laughs> Why? Because you know, tomatoes are an Italian sort of symbol I guess and then he got really mixed up with a lot of much more than me with like the bad crowd you Mm -hmm. know of like and he was younger and a little bit more fragile but it's true you know we both were sort of like how are we going to figure this out like we don't have any reference point you know and we also didn't speak that much English like we spoke English but we didn't understand American American slang it's really different it's very different. It's very different than what you might so, learn in school, yeah. for example. You are listening to the LARP Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We'll return to our interview with Chiara Barzini, author of Things That Happened Before the Earthquake, in just a moment. But for now, this week's book recommendation. We have Natalie J. Graham back in the studio with us today. Natalie J. Graham is the author of Begin with a Failed Body, a new collection of poems, just won the Cave Conum Poetry Prize. Natalie, you are here with a book recommendation. What book will you be recommending today? I want to recommend the most recent book actually I've read. I read it through again, and this is a book called Play Dead by mm-hmm. Francine Harris. It's a book that I found in reading, it gave me a lot of freedom, right? There's something about her working through these tense and difficult images and moments that I found sort of freeing me from, I guess, what would, you know, in my work is is very like tense and kind of confined. I think there's a lot of opening that her work kind of gave me like this refreshing, I guess, refreshing moment. I can kind of go back to. What brought you to the book? How did you discover it? How did you find it? I met Francine actually in Cave Canem, mm-hmm. probably, I mean, it's got to be seven, eight years now. And so I've kind of been watching her 
work from afar and gone to a couple of readings. And so when her book came out, I wanted to just get in. And so I have this like, you know, stack of books that I've been meaning to get to. And oh, so yeah. this is, you know, one of the It's a sad stack. Ones. Oh, man. It's so hard. Yeah. When, I mean, there seems like there will always be a day mm-hmm. when I will read this. Right. But when will that day come? I have no idea. Yeah. It's, I'm putting yeah. myself on a on a very strict regimen. Oh, you are? Very strict diet of books. Oh, what is, wait, do you mind if we hear your strict regimen? Well, okay, so I'm already off, but I'm going to start okay. again now. <laughs> <It's a laughs> good sign. New, this is a good moment. <laughs> um, and so my goal is to read a book of poems every week and write a poem in response to that book every week. Oh, so, that sounds great. Yeah, it's, it's it's really fun, actually. I think that kind of gives me a gaming element. That's mm-hmm. what I've, I've heard, like the gamification of culture is the new kind of movement in the academic circles, at least. So I'm going to try to game myself into more of these poetry books. Okay. And if one or many of our listeners decide to join you and they start with the book that you're recommending, will you say the title and the author again? It's Play Dead. By Francine Harris. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, and now we return to our interview with Chiara Barzini, author of Things That Happened Before the Earthquake. Native speakers of any language take for granted all the different kind of regionalisms Mm -hmm. that like we hear through radio and TV or something and we just understand them. But it occurs to me just how destabilizing and like discombobulating that would Mm -hmm. be for somebody who is like, well, no, this is the way you say this. Because there's a moment that Eugenia first goes to school, mm-hmm. and this reminded me of my husband is Cuban and his parents came over, mm-hmm. and his uh, mother told me this crazy story about mm-hmm. going to the first day of school when she was in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and she only knew help. <laughs> this is my address, which I've written down, and then I think how to go to like how I to need go to go to the to bathroom. The bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> and th- that comes up where Eugenia is like, I prayed to the Virgin Mary <laughs> to let me not have to go to the bathroom, and I didn't eat anything because I didn't know that I would be able to ask to go to the bathroom and to didn't ask want to be embarrassed. Or to find it, you know, those huge hallways. Yeah. And that kind of dislocation is something that like we totally don't think about Mm -hmm. in the U.S. And like you were saying before, and if you want to talk about how you think that this novel syncs up with kind of contemporary issues around immigration, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, well, I think it syncs up in in the sense that it was very much, even though we came from Europe, uh, there was still very much a whole theme about having immigrated here. And and the theme had to do with how do you get through the border police? How do you talk mm. to them? How do you reply when they ask you a hundred million questions and when they look at you like you've already immediately probably have done something wrong? And, you know, a kind of very intense reaction to people who come from another place and, and very strict. And also in terms of healthcare, you know, coming from Italy, we came from public healthcare. So we mm. we were living here without health insurance and we were 15 and 13. So both of us ended up at some point had to go to emergency rooms and then that became a whole ordeal of these huge checks would get to the house. So I think it just was so much part of our discourse at home, you know, how America deals with immigration and then to 
see it again so much in the front line today and to see the way that instead of evolving in in a positive direction it's gone completely in this like insane yeah space you know this insane political space where we're talking about walls and and just even getting here now is is like a hundred times worse than it was in the 90s which was already pretty hard yeah. you know yeah so you know it just seems and will only get worse it and, and it will only get worse and so i just think this is just one of many immigrant stories but um and it has different ingredients but i think think that all of these issues are still so much in the front line today and and need to be addressed. Can you talk a little bit about writing this book and what brought you to a place of sort of beginning to digest all of these experiences and mm-hmm. the various and whether it was the contemporary sort of nudge mm-hmm. uh, maybe toward all of these things mm-hmm. still being extremely relevant? Yeah, I think actually my boyfriend would hear stories about LA from me and he would hear me tell them in a way you know as if these things that happened were normal (laughs) (laughs) and he would be like you know that's not normal you know that's not can you give us an example well one of my classmates my first year in school uh, was shot in a mall and that's it's oh, in the book too. Happens but, in the book and right, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And it's you know, it's a different version of what happened, but it was very much inspired by that event. And it was so shocking to just this guy who was in my class was there and then the next day someone's giving an announcement, Oh, sorry, you know, he was shot in a parking lot in a mall because he was wearing baggy pants and he gave someone the wrong answer, you know. Mm-hmm. It was these kinds of things that when they happened back then, I remember this feeling this sort of layer of not letting things get to me and i think that layers stuck with me for many years until Mm. someone woke me up and said look these things that happened are very strong and they and you know you should write about them so you know i started off a long time ago writing a memoir and then the memoir just felt wrong and so working and also collecting more sort of historical information about LA at the time and and adding elements and changing things around, it just kind of morphed into a novel. So one of the things that I also really appreciated about Eugenia is the way in which, in many ways, you could talk about how she is living through trauma, mm-hmm. right? And she has a metaphor for that, which is the rubber suit, the rubber right? Suit. Which yeah. she puts on and imaginatively, and that protects her from feeling. Mm-hmm. But she also lives this narrative or it gets told to us in a way that does not make her a victim. She seems like she does have some agency. She has mm-hmm. choices. They may not be choices that she likes or that are or like that always are the best choices, <laughs> but she emerges from what seems like it could be a very traumatic narrative as someone who still does have agency, who is not mm-hmm. a victim and who is just making her way through life in the best way that she can. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, is that also important in terms of like how you were reflecting on your experiences mm-hmm. and like kind of trying to shuttle between two different, very different worlds? Well, you know, I think that was also a kind of literary choice about wanting to tell the story of someone who's not a victim in a sense mm. and tell the story of a kind of resilient, very young, but very resilient and very wise even though she's not really making wise choices, there's still an element of some kind of driving force that's not mm. completely self-destructive or that's self-destructive within certain boundaries. And I think that was a character I wanted to tell because I think 
it's more interesting that way than to just have a kind of victim story about someone who's just gone through so much fucked up stuff and <laughs> who knows if she'll ever emerge. And there's a long tradition of that, I think, in literature, but I wanted Eugenia to have agency and to make choices and to learn from her experiences and to be resilient. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about how this book and how Eugenia maybe as a character has fit into your life as a screenwriter? Well, I think the coming of age format is one that has been part of my culture, personal interest and culture for forever. In terms of film, I've I've written a lot of films that have to do with strong young female characters. Arianna, which is the one that you mentioned in the beginning, is the story of an intersexual teenager who discovers her that she was brought up as a girl, but she was actually born as a boy and her parents performed surgery on her when she was two. So she goes back to her childhood home and remembers being a boy in that house. And also it's a film that has a lot of explicit sexuality and a certain way of, of talking about sexuality, of looking about sexuality in young people, which is something that is so taboo. But actually when you're 15, that's actually your most explosive moment sexually. So that's when you should be talking about it. <laughs> right. Um, and it's probably when you know least. And it's probably when you know least, for sure, yeah. So I think these characters, these these girls, have been part of the film work that I've been doing. Another film that we're working on now that's going to be shot in the fall is called Wonder When You'll Miss Me, and it's, and it's based on a novel by this author called Amanda Davis who died in a plane crash in 2003. And it's a great novel, and again, there's a really amazing female character who's very resilient and joins a circus to run away from trauma. So I think I'm just drawn to these kinds of girls. And, and they're just, it's such a great moment that those teenage years for building your character and for finding who you are and so explosive. So are you writing the screenplays? Those are in Italian. Yes. Is, so far. Okay. Is there a difference between the way that you think and write in English Versus how you think about character or how you think about voice in Italian? Yeah, completely. Yeah. I think I write in English because, or I write fiction in English because it's more personal. And film is a little bit more impersonal because someone's going to come along and just change, change, change it. it. Right. So in terms of voice, I think the English language just allows more freedom because... I think with Italian, there's always like the looming presence of the Vatican sort of watching over you and saying, <laughs> wow. you can't really say that, you know, or you can't be that direct. There's just, even I just translated the novel back into Italian for the Italian publisher, and it's much longer because in Italian, to say something that in mm, English you would yeah. say in a very direct way, you have to find a sort of a nicer way to put it. Less oh, direct, so interesting. less edgy, less, yeah. you know. So I think that's what it is. It's this freedom of being a little wilder that the English mm. language allows you to have. Do you think it's, you ascribe it to the Vatican, a constraining influence of the Vatican? I think, yeah, it, but it's almost sub, subconscious, you right. know. It's just part of the culture. You just, you don't really know that it's like an, an alien that's living inside of you, <laughs> but it's there. <laughs> and then when you escape from it, you just get so excited. Do you think it's also partly that it's the language of your childhood? Probably, yeah. 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 And so it feels more constraining because, of course, that is a time mm -hmm. when you are more constrained in terms of the words yeah. that you use, the words that you know. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Well, we could literally talk to you for hours, but unfortunately <laughs> we have to end it there. We've been speaking with Chiara Barzini, author of Things That Happened Before the Earthquake, out now. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Chiara. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistant from William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books.